Section 3. Introduction. Section 3 was given to Joseph Smith as a result of the first near tragedy in the early history of the church. Joseph Smith had developed a warm friendship with a well-to-do farmer in Palmyra named Martin Harris, and Joseph gave him samples of characters copied from the Book of Mormon plates, which Joseph had translated. Joseph asked Martin to show these samples to a noted linguist, Professor Charles Anthon, at Columbia College, later called Columbia University. The professor was very impressed and gave Martin Harris a written statement certifying to the authenticity of the characters and the correctness of the translation by Joseph Smith. Of course, he finally got around to asking where Joseph obtained the plates, and when Martin Harris said the characters came from a record delivered to Joseph by an angel, the professor immediately tore the certificate to pieces. Nevertheless, Martin Harris had seen enough to convince him that Joseph Smith was a true prophet, and his translation skills were definitely authentic. He therefore placed his farm in the hands of a hired man and left immediately for Harmony, Pennsylvania, where Joseph was living, so he could volunteer as a scribe for Joseph as he translated the plates. After Martin Harris had written 116 fool's cap pages, he pleaded with Joseph to let him take the manuscript back to Palmyra to convince his wife and some of his skeptical relatives that they were engaged in a divine project. However, when Joseph asked the Lord for permission to let Martin Harris borrow the manuscript to show to his family, it was denied. But Martin Harris was not satisfied and pestered Joseph to ask again. Again it was denied. Finally, Martin swore he would only show the manuscript to his wife and several specified relatives if the Lord would just let him take it back to his home. The Lord finally consented, and the manuscript was hauled off to Palmyra, New York. But Harris was reckless with the manuscript and showed it to people at every opportunity. The next thing he knew, the precious document had been stolen from the dresser drawer where he usually kept it. Martin Harris suspected that his wife had taken it, and so he tore up the mattress, the pillowcases, and searched other places where he thought his wife might have hidden it. It was never found. Meanwhile, about one week after Martin Harris had left for Palmyra, tragedy struck the home of Joseph Smith. At this time, Joseph and Emma were living in a very modest little structure on a 13-and-a-half-acre farm, which Emma's father had sold to them. It was here that their first child was born. It lived only a short time, and Emma almost lost her life as well. For two weeks, Joseph obtained scarcely an hour's uninterrupted sleep as he cared for his wife through this critical illness. As she began to mend, Joseph had time to meditate on the serious consequences of letting Martin Harris have the manuscript. Martin had not written to Joseph as he had promised to do. Emma also became worried and urged Joseph to hasten to Palmyra to see what had happened. This trip was taken in the early part of July 1928. Joseph took the stage, but on the trip he could neither eat nor sleep. His spirits were smothered with apprehension and fear. Only one other passenger was on the stage, and this gentleman watched Joseph closely, thinking he might be ill. 
the stage passed within 20 miles of Palmyra and reached this point about 10 o'clock at night. When the passenger learned that Joseph was going to walk 20 miles through the darkness, he insisted on walking with him to his home. They walked through the forest to save time, but did not reach the Smith home until nearly daylight. Joseph had to be supported the last four miles of the journey as he would fall asleep while walking. Upon arriving at the Smith home, Joseph was given a little nourishment while breakfast was being prepared for the stranger and the rest of the family. Joseph sent immediately for Martin Harris, and they were expecting him about 8 a.m., but he did not come. About 12.30 p.m., they saw him walking slowly down the road toward the house. When he came to the gate, he did not come in, but climbed the fence and sat with his hat pulled down over his eyes. Finally, he came into the house and sat down at the table as though he were going to eat. Suddenly, he pressed his hands to his temples and cried out, I have lost my soul. Joseph sprang to his feet and said, Martin, have you lost the manuscript? Have you broken your oath and brought down condemnation upon my head as well as your own? Yes, it's gone, replied Martin, and I don't know where. Oh, said Joseph, all is lost, all is lost. What shall I do? Joseph's mother said he was completely beside himself. He expressed his most bitter anguish and self-condemnation for letting the manuscript out of his possession and offending the Lord by his insistent asking. Joseph left the next day for Pennsylvania. The whole Smith family was left in the deepest mourning. They had been willing to endure almost anything because of the privilege of being associated with this great work. Now the family was horrified. So far as they knew, Joseph had failed, and the work would be taken out of his hands. Immediately upon returning home, Joseph went to the Lord in prayerful sorrow. Moroni appeared, demanded the Urim and Thummim, and told Joseph he had committed a most serious offense. Then he said, quote, If you are very humble and penitent, it may be that you will receive the Urim and Thummim again. If so, it will be on the 22nd of next September. But Joseph realized this would be more than three months away. A few days after this, the messenger again appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him the Urim and Thummim long enough to receive what is now Section 3 of the Doctrine and Covenants. No doubt Joseph was apprehensive as he began to receive the word of the Lord. Here is what the revelation said. The works and the designs and the purposes of God cannot be frustrated, neither can they come to naught. For God doth not walk in crooked paths, neither doth he turn to the right hand nor to the left, neither doth he vary from that which he hath said. Therefore his paths are straight, and his course is one eternal round. The Lord described his divine progression as one eternal round. This means one eternal round to bring to pass the eternal cycle of creation to which we presently belong. The Lord wanted Joseph to know that absolutely nothing is allowed to alter the course of this divine cycle. Mankind can be diverted, but not God. The Lord goes on to say, Remember. Remember that it is not the work of God that is frustrated, but the work of men.
For although a man may have many revelations, and have power to do many mighty works, yet if he boasts in his own strength, and sets at naught the counsels of God, and follows after the dictates of his own will and carnal desires, he must fall and incur the vengeance of a just God upon him. The Lord wants Joseph to realize what a serious offense he has committed against God. Behold, you have been entrusted with these things, but how strict were your commandments! And remember also the promises which were made to you if you did not transgress them. And behold, how oft you have transgressed the commandments and the laws of God, and have gone on in the persuasions of men. For behold, you should not have feared man more than God, although men set at not the counsels of God and despise his words, yet you should have been faithful, and he would have extended his arm, and supported you against all the fiery darts of the adversary, and he would have been with you in every time of trouble. Joseph might have considered himself a nobody compared to well-to-do Martin Harris, but the Lord wants Joseph to realize that he doesn't have to curry favor with anyone. All he has to do is to be faithful to God. Now the Lord wants this unschooled youth to realize what a marvelous position he occupies in the sight of God. Behold, Thou art Joseph, and thou wast chosen to do the work of the Lord. But because of transgression, if thou art not aware, thou wilt fall. But remember, God is merciful. Therefore, repent of that which thou hast done, which is contrary to the commandment which I gave you. And thou art still chosen, and art again called to the work. Nothing the Lord would have said would have relieved the anxiety of Joseph more than what the revelation declared in these two verses. Joseph was assured that if he humbly repented, he could still be chosen to fulfill his high calling. Nevertheless, his calling would still remain at risk unless he profoundly repented. In fact, unless the Lord was satisfied with his repentance, Joseph would completely lose his prophetic calling and his ability to enjoy the gift of translation. Except thou do this, thou shalt be delivered up and become as other men, and have no more gift. The Lord said Joseph had weighed in the balance the petition of this wicked man against the decision of the Lord, and favored the petition of this wicked man over that of the Lord three different times. And when thou deliverest up that which God had given thee sight and power to translate, thou deliverest up that which was sacred into the hands of a wicked man, who has set at naught the counsels of God, and has broken the most sacred promises which were made before God, and has depended upon his own judgment and boasted in his own wisdom. And this is the reason that thou hast lost thy privileges for a season, for thou hast suffered the counsel of thy director to be trampled upon from the beginning. The Lord says he has a most sacred work to accomplish. He must flood the earth with the fullness of the gospel to come forth through the translation of the Book of Mormon. 
It is his plan to once more recover the descendants of the Nephites as well as the Lamanites from their rank apostasy and degenerate paganism. Nevertheless, my works shall go forth, for inasmuch as the knowledge of a Savior has come unto the world, through the testimony of the Jews, even so shall the knowledge of a Savior come unto my people, and to the Nephites, and the Jacobites, and the Josephites, and the Zoramites, through the testimony of their fathers. And this testimony shall come to the knowledge of the Lamanites, and the Lemuelites, and the Ishmaelites, who dwindle in unbelief because of the iniquity of their fathers, whom the Lord has suffered to destroy their brethren the Nephites, because of their iniquities and their abominations. The Lord wants Joseph to understand that this is why the gold plates have been preserved during all of these centuries since the days of Mormon and Moroni. And for this very purpose are these plates preserved, which contain these records, that the promises of the Lord might be fulfilled which he made to his people, and that the Lamanites might come to the knowledge of their fathers, and that they might know the promises of the Lord and that they may believe the gospel and rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ and be glorified through faith in his name, and that through their repentance they might be saved. Amen. Thus the Lord concludes section 3 of the Doctrine and Covenants. When this revelation was completed, Joseph was required to give up the Urim and Thummim as well as the gold plates, Suddenly his divine calling had come to a halt. Now all he could do was to work on his farm and wait for the Lord to be satisfied that he had repented sufficiently to continue his sacred mission. Section 4. Introduction. During the winter of 1828, Emma occasionally helped Joseph as he tried to get some of the translating done pending the arrival of the promised scribe. Emma Smith has left a very interesting commentary concerning this period. Quote, the plates often lay on the table without any attempt at concealment, wrapped in a small linen tablecloth which I had given him to fold them in. I once felt of the plates as they thus lay on the table, tracing their outline and shape. They seemed to be pliable like thick paper and would rustle with a metallic sound when the edges were moved by the thumb, as one does sometimes thumb the edges of a book. Unquote. Now that's in the Documentary History of the Church, Volume 1, page 27. When Emma was asked if she did not think Joseph might have made up the material as he went along, she said, Joseph Smith could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon. And though I was an active participant in the scenes that transpired, was present during the translation of the plates, and had cognizance of things as they transpired, it is marvelous to me, a marvel and a wonder, as much as to anyone else." Unquote. When asked if she really believed the Book of Mormon was of divine origin, she said, quote, my belief is that the Book of Mormon is of divine authenticity. I have not the slightest doubt of it. When acting as his scribe, and she was being interviewed by her son, he would dictate to me hour after hour, 
and when returning after meals or interruptions, he would at once begin where he had left off, without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. This was a usual thing for him to do. It would have been improbable that a learned man could have done this, and for one so ignorant and unlearned as he was, it was simply impossible. This is quoted from Preston Nibley's book, Witnesses of the Book of Mormon, pages 28 and 29. Early in the spring of 1829, Joseph's father came to Harmony, Pennsylvania, and Joseph writes in his history that he received a revelation for him. We might mention at this point that during the next few months, Joseph was visited by a number of relatives and close friends who were anxious to know the will of the Lord concerning them. All of these revelations for various individuals who were supporters of Joseph contained approximately the same thing his father received, but with additional comments where appropriate. We will run across these individual revelations as we proceed. Meanwhile, here is the word of the Lord for Joseph's father. Now behold, a marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. This is a glorious proclamation from the Lord that one of the greatest events in all human history is about to be unfolded. The Lord then outlines the responsibility of those who undertake to assist the Lord in this great work. Therefore, O ye that embark in the service of God, see that ye serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, that ye may stand blameless before God at the last day. Anyone who engages in this divine work which God is about to undertake have a rare and glorious privilege, but they must realize that it also involves a most sacred and eternal responsibility. Therefore, if ye have desires to serve God, ye are called to the work. This simple statement could be misunderstood. It is true that all those who recognize the supreme majesty of the work God is undertaking and who undertakes to participate will be called to serve. However, as Hiram Smith will later learn, no one is authorized to serve until he is actually called. Now the Lord emphasizes the need for a multitude to assist in this work. For behold, the field is white, all ready to harvest. And lo, he that thrusteth in his sickle with his might, the same layeth up in store that he perisheth not, but bringeth salvation to his soul. Next, the Lord indicates the godly qualifications which are needed for those who want to qualify for this great work. And faith, hope, charity, and love, with an eye single to the glory of God, qualify him for the work. Remember faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, diligence. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Amen. Section 5. Introduction. As one might have expected, Father Smith had barely returned to Palmyra when he let it be known that he had received a wonderful personal revelation concerning the great and marvelous work which was about to come forth. 
No doubt this exciting news reached the ears of the repentant and sorrowful Martin Harris, because in a very short time he had traveled to Harmony, Pennsylvania, to ask for the word of the Lord concerning himself. He also hoped he might get to see the plates. As Joseph's scribe, it was embarrassing for him to have to admit to people that he had never seen the plates. Of course, up to this time, no one had seen the plates because of the Lord's strict instructions to Joseph. Martin Harris came all the way to Harmony, Pennsylvania, hoping he could get to see the plates. Joseph asked the Lord concerning this matter, and this is the answer Joseph received for Martin Harris. The date was in March 1829. So here is the text of section 5. Behold, I say unto you that as my servant Martin Harris has desired a witness at my hand, that you, my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., have got the plates of which you have testified and borne record that you have received of me. And now behold, this shall you say unto him, He who spake unto you said unto you, I, the Lord, am God, and have given these things unto you, my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and have commanded you that you should stand as a witness of these things. The Lord wants to establish, first of all, that it is Joseph who is to be the original and foremost witness in connection with the Book of Mormon. And I have caused you that you should enter into a covenant with me, that you should not show them except to those persons to whom I commanded you, and you have no power over them except I grant it unto you. And you have a gift to translate the plates, and this is the first gift that I bestowed upon you. And I have commanded that you should pretend to no other gift until my purpose is fulfilled in this, for I will grant unto you no other gift until it is finished. The miraculous power which God has given to Joseph Smith to translate or dictate the contents of this sacred record is a miracle in and of itself. The Lord says that until the recording of the Book of Mormon is completed, he will not extend the gifts and powers of Joseph. Verily I say unto you, that woe shall come unto the inhabitants of the earth if they will not hearken unto my words. For hereafter you shall be ordained, and go forth and deliver my words unto the children of men. Behold, if they will not believe my words, they would not believe you, my servant Joseph. If it were possible that you should show them all these things which I have committed unto you. Wicked people do not have the ability to believe even after they have seen concrete evidence. That is why nothing would be accomplished by showing the wicked the tangible evidence of the plates. They still could not read them and would probably say Joseph was just making up the words as he went along. Oh, this unbelieving and stiff-necked generation, mine anger is kindled against them. Behold, verily I say unto you, I have reserved those things which I have entrusted unto you, my servant Joseph, for a wise purpose in me, and it shall be made known unto future generations. But this generation shall have my word through you. Notice that in verse 9, the Lord implies that someday 
He will be willing to make the plates available for various people to examine. But for the present, the people must be willing to accept the testimony of Joseph himself. Nevertheless, the Lord now makes an exciting announcement. And in addition to your testimony, the testimony of three of my servants, whom I shall call and ordain, unto whom I will show these things, and they shall go forth with my words that are given through you, yea, they shall know of a surety that these things are true, for from heaven will I declare it unto them. I will give them power that they may behold and view these things as they are. In these verses, the three witnesses are promised two scientific testimonies concerning the plates. First of all, they will be allowed to see and handle the plates. Then they will hear the voice of the Lord, testifying from heaven that they have been correctly translated by Joseph Smith. Then they will know that the contents of the Book of Mormon in English is true and correct. Next, the Lord declares that only these three witnesses will have a scientific testimony of the Book of Mormon. He says, And to none else will I grant this power to receive this same testimony among this generation. In this the beginning of the rising up and the coming forth of my church out of the wilderness, clear as the moon and fair as the sun and terrible as an army with banners, and the testimony of three witnesses will I send forth of my word. The Lord then promises that those who hear the testimonies of the three witnesses and follow the promptings of the Spirit will be led into the waters of baptism and the reception of the Holy Ghost. And behold, whosoever believeth on my words, them will I visit with the manifestation of my Spirit, and they shall be born of me, even of water and of the Spirit. The Lord says they cannot receive these sacred blessings as yet, because they are not yet ordained to perform these ordinances. And you must wait yet a little while, for ye are not yet ordained. Then the Lord warns of the burden of responsibility, which will fall on all mankind who hear the testimony of these witnesses, but do not accept them. They will not only be damned for rejecting these sacred testimonies, but they will be confronted by a desolating scourge. And their testimony shall also go forth unto the condemnation of this generation, if they harden their hearts against them. For a desolating scourge shall go forth among the inhabitants of the earth, and shall continue to be poured out from time to time, if they repent not until the earth is empty, and the inhabitants thereof are consumed away and utterly destroyed by the brightness of my coming. Behold, I tell you these things, even as I also told the people of the destruction of Jerusalem, and my word shall be verified at this time, as it hath hitherto been verified." This warning will be fulfilled as literally as the warning to the Jews that Jerusalem would be destroyed. In 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans was so devastating that scarcely one stone was left upon another. 
At this point, the Lord turns to Joseph Smith to remind him of his own delinquencies in allowing himself to be influenced by the pestering of Martin Harris. He says, And now I command you, my servant Joseph, to repent and walk more uprightly before me, and to yield to the persuasions of men no more, and that you be firm in keeping the commandments wherewith I have commanded you. And if you do this, behold, I grant unto you eternal life, even if you should be slain. This statement concludes with a shuddering suggestion that even though Joseph is faithful in fulfilling his mission, he might be slain. A similar suggestion of possible martyrdom is set forth in section 6, verse 30. Of course, it was Martin Harris who hastened down from Palmyra to ask if the Lord would reveal how he felt about him. Now he finds out. First he gets a severe scolding, and then he receives a thrilling promise. And now again I speak unto you, my servant Joseph, concerning the man that desires the witness. Behold, I say unto him, he exalts himself and does not humble himself sufficiently before me. But if he will bow down before me and humble himself in mighty prayer and faith, in the sincerity of his heart, then will I grant unto him a view of the things which he desires to see. And then he shall say unto the people of this generation, Behold, I have seen the things which the Lord hath shown unto Joseph Smith, Jr., and I know of a surety that they are true, for I have seen them, for they have been shown unto me by the power of God, and not of man. But the Lord proclaims a warning to Martin Harris. He is only to bear a simple witness to what he actually experiences. He must not arrogantly presume to preach or teach the gospel. The Lord knew that all three witnesses to the Book of Mormon would eventually leave the church. But Martin is warned that he must never deny his testimony as a witness to the Book of Mormon, or he will be condemned by God. Now, as church history will demonstrate, none of the witnesses ever denied their testimonies of the Book of Mormon, even though all of them had their feelings hurt and left the church, two of them for a season but one of them permanently. And I, the Lord, command him, my servant Martin Harris, that he shall say no more unto them concerning these things, except he shall say, I have seen them, and they have been shown unto me by the power of God. And these are the words which he shall say. But if he deny this, he will break the covenant which he has before covenanted with me. And behold, he is condemned. Now the Lord wants Martin Harris to know that the possibility of his becoming one of the three witnesses is entirely conditional, he said. And now, except he humble himself and acknowledge unto me the things that he has done which are wrong, and covenant with me that he will keep my commandments and exercise faith in me, Behold, I say unto him, he shall have no such views, for I will grant unto him no views of the things of which I have spoken. And if this be the case, I command you, my servant Joseph, that you shall say unto him, that he shall do no more, nor trouble me any more concerning this matter. 
Now the Lord anticipates the worst and says that if Martin Harris falters, Joseph is to discontinue the translation until he is authorized to continue. Joseph is threatened that if he does fail to follow these instructions, he will lose his power to translate any further. And if this be the case, behold, I say unto thee, Joseph, when thou hast translated a few more pages, thou shalt stop for a season, even until I command thee again then thou mayest translate again. And except thou do this, behold, thou shalt have no more gift, and I will take away the things which I have entrusted with thee. The Lord then sees a vision of a secret combination seeking to destroy Joseph from off the face of the earth, and warns Martin Harris that unless he humbles himself in the deepest petition to the Lord, he will not be one of the witnesses, and he will become ensnared with Satan's secret combinations. That will seek to have Joseph Smith destroyed. Little did Martin Harris suspect what would happen in the next few months. And now because I foresee the lying in wait to destroy thee, Yea, I foresee that if my servant Martin Harris humbleth not himself, and receive a witness from my hand, that he will fall into transgression, and there are many that lie in wait to destroy thee from off the face of the earth. And for this cause, that thy days may be prolonged, I have given unto thee these commandments. The Lord declares that because this murderous machination is in process of development, Joseph is to stop and stand still, apparently until Martin Harris has demonstrated which way he will choose to go. Nevertheless, if Joseph is carefully obedient to everything the Lord commands him to do, he will escape the snares of the adversary and be lifted up at the last day. Yea, for this cause I have said, Stop, and stand still until I command thee, and I will provide means whereby thou mayest accomplish the thing which I have commanded thee. And if thou art faithful in keeping my commandments, thou shalt be lifted up at the last day. Amen.